Welcome to The Guardian and Visit London's Pod Tours. These tours are designed to be taken on location as guided walks. They should work in real time, but we've divided them into chapters and there's a map too that you can download so that you don't get out of sync. If you're listening at home or on the computer, these podcasts should still work as a documentary in their own right. And if that's the case, then sit back and enjoy. But if you're walking with us, take yourself to the Old Red Lion pub at number 418 St John Street, just two minutes walk south of Angel Tube, where you'll meet Andy Dixon, The Guardian's online arts editor. standing outside a London theatre, you might assume I was on the South Bank or in the West End. In fact, we're somewhere else entirely, standing at the top end of St John Street in North East London, just a stone's throw from Angel Tube. This place we're standing outside is the Old Red Lion. It's a regular looking pub on the outside, but by night, something else entirely. One of Islington's best kept theatrical secrets. Come here in the evening and you're as likely to be served a play as a pint of bitter. Upstairs, just above the bar, there's a tiny 60-seat theatre. Ah, Mr. Postlethwaite! How are you this fine morning? Ah, my dear Mr. Sniggs. Oh, that's very good indeed. (laughs) Exceedingly well. At the moment, the red line features none other than ex-Doctor Who, Sylvester McCoy, in an adaptation of Evelyn Waugh's Decline and Fall. And coming up in the next few months are plays by American dramatists Teresa Rebic and Naomi Wallace. (laughs) Tickets are just a fraction of what you pay on the West End. And the best thing of all about pub theatre? You can take your drinking. It's my first time being in a pub theatre. So it's amazing, you have, the, you, have, you have the entertainment and then you have the bar, so it's really convenient for the audience just to alternate between both. It cost about £25 for two seats and a bottle of wine, which I think is an incredible price and it's quite a nice bottle of wine too. <laughs> I'm quite enjoying it. I, I actually live in Liverpool, but my daughter bro- brought me here tonight yeah. to see this. Mum's never been to a theatre pub. I think it's a great experience. I'd definitely come again every time I come to London. I want to do this. I really didn't know what to expect. It was much better than I thought. I thought the quality would be uh, fairly low just because it's such a... It's in a pub. (laughs) But it's really very, very good. I don't know if you were serious, but a position has opened up, which I feel might suit you. I would be happy to offer it to someone who's been so kind to our son. We employ a number of people to go around the various inns and hotels to sample the beer. So we should get walking. So we're going to head up St John Street. The old red line is going to be behind us. And we're going to cross City Road onto the bottom of Upper Street. Let's get going. Joining me on this pub crawl with a difference is Dr Sophie Neald, who's Senior Lecturer in Drama at Royal Holloway College. Sophie, 
We should have a wander, and we should try not to get too drunk en route, I guess. <laughs> this is w- one of the modern pub theatres, basically, isn't it, this place? Yes, yes. One of the Victorian historians, William Pink, uh, wrote that he believed that there'd been continuous entertainment on this site since 1415. As early as that? Wow, that's amazing. Yes, it's not the original building, of course. The building that we see now, that we're standing outside of, um, was built in 1899. And interestingly, because it has two entrances and exits, it was often used by people bilking um, taxi drivers, fares. They would go, oh, I'm just going to go in and get some change, go in by one door, <laughs> come out, out by the other, the other door. door. So it wasn't particularly Definitely, popular <laughs> with taxi drivers. The thing about pub theatres, probably the first thing you notice when you go is their size. They are, by and large, absolutely tiny. We're talking about seven metres squared with an audience of 30 or 40 people. It's cosy and more intimate with the actors. You feel that they're actually speaking to you and it's because it's such a small area, it's comforting. I liked um, the way one of the actors was treating the audience like they're school kids and pointing <laughs> pointing at us with a stick. <laughs> um, yeah, lovely. Someone who knows the dimensions of the red line extremely well is Katie Mitchell, the brilliant British theatre director and associate of the National Theatre. She started her career here in 1990 with a production of the little-known Elizabethan play Arden of Faversham. I think I operated all of the lights, um, some of the sound, and we filled the whole auditorium with earth. But it was a wonderful experience. The old red line is a very, very small theatre and very, very hot. So it was very difficult to make the show work and also stop the audience from suffocating. So most of my memories of that time are to do with heat, my own failure as a lighting operator, everyone else's amazing risks that they took. The wonderful actors took fantastic risks in performing. I think we were doing weird Polish work, a lot of physicality and a lot of a cappella singing. But for me, the, the funniest thing was the audience who would be like boiling. They would literally be shedding clothes as they went through and they would emerge a stone lighter. My name's Frank Sterling and uh, it was, I think it was back in the 90s we did this production at the Old Red Lion and it was called King James's Ear. It was by a guy called Rob Dungate and it was the story of the Thomas Overbury poisoning. Backstage, you basically you had, you had one room, I don't know what it was, but it was about the size of a small insalubrious loo. And then you had a tiny narrow corridor which ran behind the stage. And then if it wasn't raining, there was a flat roof you could get out onto in desperation, which the cast of 14 was quite important. But I remember the corridor was so small that when you came off at the end and you had to change and all our, all our clothes were hung up on sort of pegs, as I remember it, along this back wall, we actually had to... <laughs> effectively change our trousers in unison because if people bent down at different times to pull things up we all bumped, in, bumped into each other and fell over so we had this kind of routine where you had to come sort of go one two three take your trousers down this was a mixed cast I hasten to add as well and it was the only way of feasibly doing it we just passed Angel Tube and we're just entering this very wide, it's all surprisingly wide, isn't it, Upper Street, when you first kind of come up to it. I think actually, they actually used to drive cattle down here from the, the fattening fields of Islington in the 17th century, I think. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> These days, most people know Islington probably because of its shops, its bars, its rather gentrified, posh bit of London. But actually, there's a sort of hidden side to it, which is this life as an entertainment quarter, a place to go out and see stuff. Yes, and in fact, um, if we look back, Um, There are theatres in Shoreditch before there are theatres on the South Bank. 
Um, obviously, the Globe and the Rose are the famous ones, but in fact, the first permanent theatre building um, in London, in the UK, was the theatre in Shoreditch, which was built a full 10 years before the Globe. And this is the amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, little-known spotty fact, but one of my favourite facts is the theatre... Shakespeare's theatre, literally called the theatre, was actually the same building as the Globe. What happened is that they got into a dispute with the landlord, took down the theatre, popped it on the 16th century equivalent at the back of a lorry, dragged it across the Thames and built the Globe. Yes, the timbers of the theatre were hauled down to the South Bank to pioneer that as a, as a theatre district. So the northeast of London is a very old theatre district, older in fact even than the West End or the South Bank. One of the very oldest theatres in this area, dating from as early as 1683, is just a few hundred metres from where we started our walk. And the story of its birth tells us a lot about Islington's taste for booze and for fun. Sadler's Wells starts when Richard Sadler has workmen working in his garden and they uncover a well, a medicinal well. And being a keen entrepreneur, he decides that he'll make some money and he starts really one of the earliest pleasure gardens in this area. Because it actually starts as a medicinal spring in the medieval yes, era. Yes, absolutely. By the 17th century, it's actually a place to come and hear music and have a bit of a wild time. It was medicinal, absolutely. People took the waters for their health. But we understand they often turned up only about an hour before the band started. So I think <laughs> already a kind of entertainment venue. Yeah, and just sort of this, this yes. balance between drinking and entertainment is absolutely. always slightly in favour of drinking, maybe. Yes, and that's certainly something that Islington is renowned for. We know by the mid-18th century there are more than 50 pubs and drinking houses um, up and down Upper Street. I'm not sure all of them have turned into delicious cake houses, but it can sometimes feel that way. So we've got Jack Wills on the right and we're just crossing over to the left-hand side of Upper Street. Sophie, I mean, actually, theatre really gets born in pubs in Britain, Sophie, doesn't it? Because it begins in the inn yards of the late medieval period and the early 16th century. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, obviously, there's travelling entertainment and so on in the medieval period, uh, people performing in market squares and fairs and so on. But at the point where, really, the theatre profession starts to become professional, um, you need a location for performances, not least so that you can charge admission. Um, and so what happens is companies tour... Uh, the UK, the city, and what the companies would do when they rolled up in a regional town, they had to go and present their credentials to the mayor. If he decided to let you play, he would commission the first performance to which everybody could come uh, for no money, and then he would pay the players what he thought their performance was worth afterwards. And often these performances are in inn yards with um, a flat space for people to stand and then the galleries round. Because people might not realise that, mightn't they? Actually, the, the, the form of the globe, which has a flat stage and this amphitheatre surrounding it, is actually pretty much Based what you get if you pub. put a, a, a cart in the equivalent of a pub car park and yes. gathered audience members around it. Yes, that's exactly what happens. And a lot of the theatre that's played in London before the establishment of the Globe, the Curtain Theatre um, and so on, the permanent theatres, are in pubs. The Bull, the Bell, the Bell Sauvage, uh, the Cross Keys. So there's a green park coming up right in the middle of Upper Street. The road forks on the right is Essex Road, on the left is the continuation of Upper Street. There's a big statue here, a guy called Sir Hugh Middleton looking down on us and that's where we're going to head next. Very nice bridges. Lovely rough. <laughs> if we just cross through, um, through the park, 
we'll arrive at um, the site of one of the probably the most famous music halls in the area. So literally on this site? Literally on this site. In fact, it's now occupied by um, a Waterstones bookshop. Right next to Brown's, classily. Right next to Brown's. We're right by the top of Islington Green and we're standing beneath a blue plaque that reads Collins Music Hall was here from 1862 to 1958, I think, just about, re- just about make it out. Yes, that's right. Collins um, is one of the most famous music halls. In a way, you can see it as the pub theatre of its time. Um, these are back rooms that people start up, public and start up, to draw in the new urban population. Um, often just free and easy at first, people singing a song. They formalise um, 1840s, 1850s, until they are charging admission um, to watch the entertainment in the back of the pub. But very importantly, they are often funded by the breweries. They make their money on sales of alcohol. And in fact, some of them, uh, rather cheekily known as free houses, looked like they had no admission costs. But what you had to buy was an entertainment token that you could exchange for drinks in the bar. And just to give people a flavour of what those performances would be like, I guess the sort of modern day equivalent is a bit like it's the Royal Variety performance, isn't it? What we talk about as the, the British variety tradition. Oh yes, absolutely and, and in fact the 1912 Royal Command performance of variety is the moment where Music Hall finally becomes respectable. So and we're talking about songs, we're talking about dancing, songs, we're talking about dancing, people singing the latest hits. sketch comedy. What was the atmosphere like if you were stepping inside Collins Music Hall? Well, Collins was actually very unusual because it was quite a respectable house. It was known as the Chapel on the Green. So kind of untypical. Apparently, Sam Collins kept quite a, uh, quite a strict regime. But most usually, the experience of being in a music hall was extremely hugger-mugger. Um, people were shouting. People were talking throughout. They would eat and drink. Food was served. Um, often tables were laid out. Um, and it's really you have to imagine more entertainers trying to attract the attention of punters who are eating a big pie. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? They have to try really hard, which I guess is a little bit similar to the pub theatre of today. There's this similar sort of intimacy being cheek by jowl performers. You can really stare into the whites of their eyes, which I think is a great point to carry on walking, because what we're going to do is we're going to head left out of Islington Green uh, towards the west side. We're going to pass in front of the green, the screen on the green cinema, and we're going to head up to the King's Head. So, Sophie, it's interesting, isn't it? We're just walking up uh, past what seemed like a thousand of Islington's estate agents. I mean, during the day, this place looks very staid, conservative, rather gentrified, rather posh these days. But actually, if you come here on a Saturday night, there's something a bit more energetic and something a bit fruitier about it. Oh, yes. Um, And this area, it really didn't start to gentrify um, until the 1960s. And I think we hear about it now because so many politicians live here. And as you say, there are so many uh, nice restaurants and cafes and places to be during the day. Um, But places don't change their spots um, quite so swiftly as that. And I think all of the history that we've been talking about that's layered into this area um, still makes it very lively, very energetic and possibly... um, I hesitate to say a little dangerous, but certainly quite edgy. And I think that is possibly one of the reasons why it's so full of these experimental and exciting theatre venues. So the links between drinking and watching theatre in London were laid centuries ago, but today's pub theatres owe their existence to something much more recent. 
which is the explosion in London's fringe theatre circuit in the late 60s and yes, 70s. Yes, very much so, yes. So we're just arriving at St Mary's Church. It's this rather beautiful 18th century church on the right-hand side. Opposite it is the post office, and next to that is the King's Head Theatre Pub. The King's Head is the first, the very first modern pub theatre in London. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. Modern pub theatre starts here. Sounds like quite a good point to go and have a pint. Oh, good idea. Is it your round or is it mine? <laughs> Let's debate as we cross the road. So if you're joining us on this walk, why don't you come in with us to the King's Head, get a drink and sit down. Mention the King's Head to any theatre aficionado and they all say the same thing. It's legendary. All that is down to an American called Dan Crawford, a leading light in London's theatre history. It was him who came across this crumbling pub in the late 60s, and it was him who decided to transform it into a theatre. I'd been told by people where I lived, not just off the Fulham Road, that Islington was up and coming. So I thought, well, might as well come up. And I did, I came up to see what was going on. And I went to each pub on the, from the Angel up to here and said, I hear you're on the market. I got here and the chap behind the bar said, on the market, get me out of here. I've been temporarily managing this place for nearly a year. It's driving me crazy. It's like solitary confinement. So I said, ah, very good. So I called the, an estate agent the next day. The estate agent called the brewery. And the brewery said, well, nobody else wants it. Might as well give it to you on a punt. And they did. After Dan Crawford died in 2005, Adam Maher Smith took over as the joint artistic director of the King's Head. You know, Dan Crawford was the longest-serving off-West End artistic director. In 35 years, uh, he created the theatre and led the theatre. And he had a, a knack for finding, you know, he discovered so much new talent here that have gone on to, you know, be some of the biggest actors this country's known. Give me some names. Joanna Lumley had one of her first jobs here. Tom Stoppard, Sir Tom Stoppard. Richard E. Grant, I think, had his first job here. Victoria Wood has worked here. Maureen Lipman's worked here. You know, if you just go downstairs and have a look at the wall, it just tells you that, you know, it, it just as much as the, the architecture of this place tells you about its history, going downstairs and having a look at all those photographs of the famous alumni on the wall is amazing just to see the legacy and the history of, of all the people that have worked here and have gone on to, to be some of the most famous actors in the world. The King's Head was my first acting job in England. So I'm very, very grateful and in debt for that, otherwise I'd not be sitting here in this palace that I now live in. I think the King's Head puts a kind of button in your career. It fixes you. It is a good place to play. I think it'd be nice if it stayed up. <laughs> So as Joanna Lumley, Richard E. Grant, Victoria Wood and Stephen Burkhoff, as they all say, this is the place where so many careers have begun under Dan Crawford's eccentric management and the King's Head's leaky roof. This is the place that gave a young chap called Hugh Grant his first big break and it also reawakened interest in the long-forgotten dramatist Terence Rattigan, as well as giving comedian Mel Smith the chance to do a spot of directing. Little-known plays by Tom Stoppard have been on here, so too did Eve Ensler's The Vagina Monologues, which transferred here from New York in 1999. 
We should mention that the King's Head also has a rich theatrical history, doesn't it? Because it's been a place of entertainment as well as a pub for, for centuries. In fact, I think Samuel Pepys came here. Well, there's been a pub on this site since... 1540s, 1543 and yes, there are 10 or 12 references in the diaries to the King's Head, he calls it the Old House uh, and he comes here several times to eat, he comes in 1662 uh, and he calls it then the Great Cheesecake House <laughs> Great Cheesecake, I mean as in as cheesecake in cakes of cheese, yes indeed wow. um, and he's back two years later uh, for cakes and ale and then in 1667 he comes here and sees a juggler um, who performs feats of leisure demand, sleight of hand, uh, that are apparently so good that poor Mrs Peeps thinks he must be getting aid from the devil. I don't know about cheesecake, but we could probably run to a packet of crisps and cheese. Sounds and good, yes, yes. Maybe perfect. a pint as well. <laughs> Fantastic, thanks, Andy. If you just come round the side of the bar, um, following the signs of the loos, actually you can sneak through. The theatre is right here. And you might be able to sneak in just as we are at the moment. And there's this theatre. It's actually one of the largest pub theatres in London were just over 100 seats and yeah it, it is quite small but interesting is that the King's Head has had I think it's about 45 West End Broadway transfers in its existence so that says something about Dan and his um, canny producing skills that he was able to start something the seed of something the genesis of something at the King's Head in this tiny space on, on this minuscule budget and that's something that I think we need to remind ourselves is, is that that's what the fringe is, is that we don't aspire to replicate or mimic the National Theatre. We don't. It's, it's a totally different purpose. It's the beginning of something. This is where things begin. Following Dan Crawford's death in 2005, the new team have given the King's Head yet another fresh identity as London's littlest opera house. Together, Spreadbury Maher and his colleague Robin Norton-Hale founded a company called Opera Up Close, which produced a brilliant boutique version of Puccini's Blab OM at the end of 2009 at another pub theatre over in Kilburn, the Cock Tavern. It was a hit, featuring young singers fresh out of college and a battered piano instead of a full orchestra. Opera Up Close's new show is a version of Puccini's Madame Butterfly, and it's right here at the King's Head. An even bigger challenge, especially if you're doing it in a tiny space. My name is Robin Norton Hale. I am Joint Artistic Director of Opera Up Close. Adam Sprebri Ma and I run the company together. And what's it like to work in a pub venue like this? What's the excitement or the attraction? Pub theatres are obviously smaller than other theatres, so the experience for the audience um, is much more intimate, but that um, in turn means that the performers and the directors have to direct and think about how. Um, how to stage things um, for that audience and that's really exciting and it also enables you to do things very subtly um, enables you to do something it you know I often talk to the singers um, about doing TV acting you know if you change the direction of your gaze or you move your eyebrow then the audience will be able to see it which is really exciting because it means you can you can do um, things very 
very carefully and closely. Um, but it also obviously is, is more exciting to me than TV acting because it's live. So it's, it's, it's for, in many ways, it's the best of lots of worlds. For the singers as well, it's a real challenge. You know, not only is the audience really close, but you can probably actually see them and hear them much as much as they can see and hear you. Some of our audience members have said that they, they like being able to see the singer's tonsils or even said they like being spat on, you know, it's all part of the experience. And I think that that's, that's you know, it sounds a bit disgusting, but actually I think that's quite important for audience to see what, a, what an incredible physical thing it is that opera singers do. Transposing Madame Butterfly from early 20th century Japan to modern-day Thailand hasn't impressed everybody. The Telegraph's critic wasn't a fan of this Bangkok butterfly, and doing such a big opera in such a tiny space has its limitations. But you might argue that is the point of the fringe, and so far, audiences seem to like it. Um, it, it translated surprisingly well. I, I was, I, I've been pleasantly surprised. I loved it, yes. I think this is just going to take off. You know, I think it'll happen all over the place now. I think Puccini would have thoroughly enjoyed it if he'd been here. <laughs> right, now we've drunk up, I think we should head back onto the street. That's a good plan. Refreshed, on we go. Victorian doors, onto up the street. So we're going to head left, aren't we? We're going to go with the church in front of us. We're going to go north, carrying on up Upper Street, uh, past the old post office and towards the Almeida. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. On we go. So we've just come out of the King's Head and we're talking about this relationship between alcohol and theatre. I mean, I guess if you go and see an opera at the King's Head with a pint, another pint after the interval, a third pint in the second half, you might just be a little bit three sheets to the wind. Um, I think the King's Head is interesting because it's repositioning its new focus on opera very much as non-posh opera and I think trying to challenge again people's preconceptions that they will have to behave in a certain way or stick to certain conventions um, and I guess they know they're in a pub I presume they're, they're ready for slightly plastered punters Sophie, we've, we've been name-checking this word, fringe, fringe theatre. What does it actually mean? I mean, what is the fringe in London? Well, the term itself is literally as it sounds. It's, it's events and venues and um, performances that spring up on the fringes of the mainstream conventional theatre. And what I think of when I hear the word fringe is that if you go to a performance, a venue that is a fringe venue, you're going to get something really out of the run of the ordinary. Where does pub theatre sit within the fringe? Is it a particular strand of the fringe? Well, they're small venues uh, for the most part, you know, 50, 60 seats, which I think is significant. The next level, if you like, of fringe theatre are the slightly bigger venues, Oval House, the Arts Theatre, and we're just 
passing uh, Almeida Street, which is where the Almeida Theatre is, which is about 350 seats, I think, which is still classified as a fringe venue in terms of its programming. Um, but it's able to do slightly more fully realised productions of European classics and that kind of thing. Well, because it's like a, it's the turbocharged fringe, isn't it, the Almeida? I mean, it started oh, out as a fringe theatre, so. but yes. it's, it's now, you know, it's, it's, it's world famous almost. And while we're talking about size, we should mention we're looking across the roads. So we're just at the corner of Almeida Street and Upper Street, looking across the road to Cross Street, buried behind those. Georgian houses there, those Victorian houses as well. There's a very tiny theatre called the Little Angel Theatre, smaller still. Yes, and very suitably so, because its main performers are less than human size. It's one of the three puppet theatres, permanent puppet venues uh, in the country, started in 1961 by another visionary uh, this area seems full of visionary theatre producers called John Wright, who championed puppet performance. Little Angel is minuscule, but it programmes puppetry work from all over the world. They have a workshop there where they build all of the puppets that their own produced work uh, uses, and they do a lot of community work. They have kids in for workshops and so on. It's, it's a really energetic, tiny little gem of a place. It's beautiful, and, and, and I'd actually recommend... We, we've got to hurry on to another pub theatre, but... If you get time, you should definitely have a look in because you can actually see the workshop right next to the theatre through the window. You can see people uh, creating the marionettes and uh, the, the whole workshop where they're working with all these tiny puppets. It's beautiful. So we're just walking past Islington Town, all this enormous, giant, white wedding cake of a building, and we're going to keep going across Islington Park Street, heading north. I mean, as Adam says, it's just 15 quid for a ticket to go and see some opera. I mean, that's, you know, potentially hundreds of pounds cheaper than it would be to go and see something at the opera house. Oh, it's an absolute bargain. And if, of course, what that creates is a fan of opera, someone who would never start out by going to the Royal Opera House, but who comes along, has a bite to eat, has a pint, sees a show and thinks, wow, this is for me, then that's making an art form accessible in a really fantastic way. We talked about the price of opera. I mean, plays can be even cheaper. I mean, six or seven quid at some fringe venues. And I think the old Red Lion actually is doing a pay-what-you-can evening once a week. Yes, yes, I think I think it's Thursday evening. Um, and that's been a tradition in a lot of fringe and pub theatre. Um, and in a way, it harks back to some of the things that we, we've been talking about as we've walked along. Um, the 16th century in-yards where the audience simply wouldn't pay up if they didn't like what they'd seen. Um, and then 19th century music hall audiences very vocal about what they liked and what they didn't like. Yeah, so just hand round the hat at the end, basically. Yes, absolutely, which goes right back to the kind of street origins of performance itself. Okay, so what we need to do now, we're going to cross back over Upper Street onto the east side, onto the right-hand side. We're going to go into Compton Terrace. You might just be able to see the sign there. And this is called Compton Terrace Gardens, this little bit. I think we should just nip in here and we'll walk past the Union Chapel. So just whilst we're walking through the... I was going to say the comparative serenity with someone drilling in the background. Um, I think they're restoring the Union Chapel at the moment. We should talk about funding, which is a kind of big issue in theatre at the moment, because, of course, this is the great age of austerity. The government's making cutbacks all over the place. Mm -mm. Theatre is not immune from that. The arts aren't immune from that. Oh, no, no. And I think, you know, with the Arts Council cuts that are, are going to impact on so many small-scale companies, um, that is a very real concern. I mean... You would hope that the pub theatres and the smaller fringe venues will be able to, or rather will be in a reasonably good position to ride this out, because they are run on such a shoestring. Um, I mean, in a way, the kind of what can be sometimes a, a limitation to the complexity of the artistic 
statements that they're able to make actually protects you from you know the slings and arrows of the current financial situation. Yeah, because so I think actually that happened at the King's Head because it was originally, a, at some point anyway, a subsidised venue, then lost its funding, but they mm. managed to keep it going despite it. So there's a sense that pub theatres might actually be able to weather the economic storms ahead. Hi, my name is Alastair Smith and I'm Deputy Editor of The Stage newspaper. So there, there are big arts funding cuts on the horizon. Um, pub theatres actually probably won't be as directly affected by that as many other uh, arts venues because they don't tend to receive much, if any, uh, government support. Um, what you might see, uh, I think, is actually a sort of a trickle-down effect of, of actors who can no longer get work elsewhere um, having to work on the fringe. So actually, in some ways, um, pub theatres could benefit from it. You could find more big-name actors uh, working on the fringe because there's less work elsewhere. So we're nearing the final pub theatre on our walk, the Hen and Chickens, best known these days as a comedy venue. Might go there for stand-up, new comic writing, sketch shows, things like that. It's just at the top of Upper Street on the roundabout at Highbury Corner. It's been a pub theatre for ten years. Mark has been artistic director for eight of those. With the funding-wise, I, I thought that might affect us because uh, people would struggle to put on a production. But the rental costs here, in theory, uh, if you charge £10 a ticket and you're doing a week's run, which is six shows, you sell out two of the shows, so that's 104 seats, you've got your money back. And that's what's good for young companies because it's like, we're passionate about young companies putting stuff on, new writers, um, which other venues might uh, overcharge, um, which means that they obviously can't sort of afford to put on a production. Nine times out of ten people leave and they make money. The Hen and Chickens has got something approaching cult status. It's launched some of the brightest careers in British comedy. Mighty Boost started here. I remember when they were every Monday night and in those days it was first come first serve for tickets and they used to have people queuing outside the door. The first time Russell Brand was here there was what 16, 20 people. It's amazing Simon Amstel the same thing and he actually was asking me to come upstairs to laugh because he was so nervous and I was like mate I'm, I'm busy doing the box office so I couldn't. People like Jenny Eclair, Ardlo Hanlon, Ricky Gervais, Eddie Izzard. Stuart Lee, how can I forget Stuart Lee? Yeah, pub theatre's great for, it's a great leveller for people starting out on their career, but it's testimony that once people have reached the pinnacle, that they still need to be in an intimate space to gauge an audience reaction to their material. And I remember actually when Russell Brand was doing a gig here, somebody went to the loo and he got all of us in the audience to come and hide in the dressing room. So when they came back in, the theatre was completely deserted. You don't get that anywhere else. Jimmy Carr, uh, bless him, he said, oh, let's get everyone a drink. So I had to go downstairs, get the girls in the bar to bring up 54 bottles of beer. The next night he was here, he bought six boxes of Krispy Kremes to hand them out. Um, and I think that adds to when people come to a smaller venue. Yeah, I think it's the intimacy which, which works. OK, well, I think it's just coming to about 5.30, so it's getting near drink o'clock. Um, we're getting quite close to the hen and chickens. We're just going to leap across the road there. Um, preparations, I guess, going on backstage for tonight's performance, which is called Steve and Then It Ended, I think. Um, we should go and get a drink. Sounds good. Guys, you ready to warm up? 
Hi, my name's Ellie Orford. I'm 21 years old and I'm the producer for the theatre company Sotto Voce. Jess, can you just bring up the light on the chair, please, possibly? <laughs> uh, my name's Emma Butler. I'm a 22-year-old director um, studying at Mount View Academy of Theatre Arts. Tonight, it's the final night of Stephen Then It Ended by Adam Esden. Uh, my name's Adam Esden um, and I'm the writer of uh, Stephen Then It Ended. It's all set in the kitchen of a council house on a sink estate and there's a father, a mother and a son and the apocalypse is going on outside. Sort of Roche, we're all about working with new, young, emerging theatre practitioners, writers, performers, directors and pub theatres are so welcoming and so encouraging of that. House open in two minutes, two minutes, thank you. House will be open in two minutes, thank you. I'm in the queue for the box office in the pub. <laughs> I'm interested to kind of see what it's like because I haven't really uh, frequented pub theatre, so I'm interested to see what kind of atmosphere it offers in, in comparison to normal contemporary theatre. We, we don't really know anything about the play. Because we're trying to be more cultured in New Year. New Year's resolution is to do slightly more interesting things with our weekends rather than just sitting in the pub. So we've kind of combined the pub with yeah, the theatre and we think that this will be like a home from home. I love the theatre, I'm always going to the theatre in London and I love to spot new talent. Uh, two minutes, two minutes, two minutes, thank you. Oh hi, can I get a pint of London Pride and um, a vodka tonic please? So we've seen the old red line which has this great past, we've seen opera at the King's Head, now for a bit of comedy, I mean it's this real slice of what London can offer, all in the space of about half a mile. And puts Islington again, I think, at the heart of London's whole theatre scene. Sophie, thank you so much for being my guide, I've just learned so much today, it's been brilliant. Thank you, it's been a real pleasure. Let's go and see the play. Here we go.